Welcome to Public Theologians, where Christian theology animates leftist political action. I'm Casey Hobbs. Well, as you might know from past episodes and maybe from reading a bit of my work, I am preoccupied with the questions of war and peace, and particularly how evangelical leaders and the larger Christian mainline world of leadership has so easily embraced war as not only a possible solution to many of our world's problems, but have been some of the main cheerleaders in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan in our recent times, and all the way back to wars such as Vietnam and Korea. There's been a lot of evangelical and larger Christian support. There has been some resistance movements. Uh, I'm thinking of the Berrigan brothers. I'm thinking mainly of the our brothers and sisters in the on the Catholic spectrum. But for folks in the evangelical or evangelical adjacent worlds, there's been a lot of support. So what I did is asked good friend of the show, Dr. Kristen Cobez Dumay, who I should talk to about the background of all of this and making it clear why Christians and evangelicals in particular, our leadership so easily supports and so willingly bangs a drum for war over and over again. So she recommended that I speak with today's guest, Dr. Lauren Turek. So Dr. Turek is a professor of history at Trinity University. She is the author of a recent book in 2020, To Bring the Good News to All Nations, Evangelical Influence of Human Rights and U.S. Foreign Relations. And our conversation is a wide sweep of U.S. foreign policy going all the way back to Cold War days with Soviet Russia, all the way up through the Iraq Iran wars of 1980s, all the way to our war with Iraq in the early part of this century and Afghanistan. We also cover U.S. foreign policy in our current day and age. I do want to correct one place that I misspoke during this podcast episode. Can you believe it? I make mistakes and I don't know everything either, even though sometimes I probably put on that I do know everything. I don't. So I misspoke when we were talking about Venezuela. Later in the episode, you'll hear me refer to Venezuela, to Elliot Abrams, who is a ghoul that shows up throughout the last 30, 40 years of U.S. foreign policy history. He was over Venezuela in the Trump years, but I had conflated the situation in Bolivia Evo Morales was the first indigenous president of the nation of Bolivia. He was ousted in the Trump years, and there was a Christian, quote unquote, leader called Janine Añez, who was installed as a puppet leader of Bolivia. And the result was the mass murder of many indigenous folks in Bolivia under the guise of Christianity and supported by much of Congress and certainly the Trump administration. Elliot Abrams, on the other hand, has been the lead guy from the State Department in Venezuela and our efforts to undermine and depose leaders in Venezuela goes back to the years of Chavez and is alive and well in the years of fellow leftist Daniel Ortega today. So anyways, with with those corrections in view. This conversation I also just want to point out is one that is very undercovered in Christian discussions. Most of the time we talk about U.S. domestic policy, we talk about immigration, we talk about, I talk about healthcare and poverty, but these conversations about war and peace are every bit as vital to what goes on in our daily life, because this is how we relate to our brothers and sisters all over the world. So hopefully our awareness of folks around the world and how our decisions as a nation affect their day-to-day lives and material realities will be helpful and beneficial, particularly in a Christian context. So I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Dr. Lauren Turek. 
Dr. Lauren Turek, thank you so much for joining me on Public Theologians. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so I want to talk to you a bit about uh, your book that came out last year in 2020, to, uh, to Bring the Good News to All Nations, Evangelical Influence on Human Rights and Foreign Relations. So give us kind of the broad overview of what got you into this work and kind of your relationship to the subject matter itself. Sure. Yeah. So I am, you know, I'm primarily a foreign policy historian. So that's where I'm coming in terms of my uh, background, uh, my academic preparation and my background. And so I'm, I'm someone who's really particularly interested in the moments in U.S. history when domestic interest groups uh, find themselves really engaged in a foreign policy issue in such a way that they're actually potentially having an influence on U.S. foreign policy making. We so often think of U.S. foreign policy as the province of clerks and leaders in the State Department or the White House going out and talking to other leaders elsewhere. And there's that feeling that maybe regular people either aren't paying super close attention to it or can't really influence what's happening on the world stage. But of course, we are um, a democratic country uh, so far, uh, and so, <laughs> so you know things are things are dicey right now. But but the idea is that we we as people do actually have a say in the policy that our government makes, and so there there are efforts by citizens uh, to lobby uh, policymakers to change what the U.S. is doing abroad. And in many cases, the the goals that that U.S. people have when they're lobbying on foreign policy issues are to make the U.S. foreign policy align more closely with what. A particular group sees as the core values of the United States. And of course, we disagree often about what those values are, or how they mm -hmm. should be represented. But broadly, it's often a desire to ensure that U.S. foreign policy is reflective of the values that, that the citizens have, whether that's promoting, um, you know, democracy, promoting liberal capitalism, depending on your views, mm -hmm. um, and so on and so forth. And so, so that really comes out, or, or you know, folks who want to promote um, human rights and peace, right? So there's all different ways that that U.S. Uh, citizens have promoted foreign policy. And so I was really interested in that, that sort of question. And religious groups are a particularly interest, interesting um, set of interest groups to me. And so when I was looking for topics for the book, I was doing some research on Nixon's policies and detente with the Soviet Union, because I mm. primarily study the, the late 20th century, the Cold War. And I was very surprised to see that evangelical Christians were up in arms about Nixon's policy of detente with the Soviet Union. And this was a policy aimed at relaxing tensions so that the United States could improve its standing in the world and, and hopefully kind of get itself uh, perhaps out of the Vietnam War, you know, in a favorable way and reduce nuclear tensions. Um, and so I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm really surprised to see evangelicals up in arms about this because when I was reading this material, I'm thinking, oh, well, I usually think of evangelicals, white evangelical Christians as being mostly concerned with like really hot button domestic issues like sure. abortion, prayer in school, um, a, a lot of which stem from concerns about, you know, uh, the, the sort of culture wars, but also ideas about in integration in mm. those Christian schools. So. I'm, I'm surprised to see them turn up in this way. Often when I think of, uh, of, of them, it's that or, or, or U.S.-Israeli politics. But here they are. Yeah. And a lot of what they're saying and a lot of what they're, they're sort of angry about is the religious persecution that's happening in the Soviet Union and the desire not to relax tensions with a country that's persecuting Christians and, and also persecuting its Jewish citizens. And I said, ah, oh, this has the makings of a really interesting book project because I wonder if this is happening elsewhere and I wonder why. I wonder where this comes from, because they're very organized. And then the sort of bookend to that is I also know that in 1998, evangelical Christians are a key lobbying force on the passage of the International Religious Freedom Act in a way that much of the writing about that had been surprised to see them there as though it was strange that they would be at the table. And I said, oh, I wonder, I wonder if this is part of this big backstory. And indeed it is. So there's, there's all of these dynamics happening that become very interesting looking particularly at the 70s. And I was just really excited to kind of dive in and see how these groups are developing a foreign policy agenda, how they become effective lobbyists and how they do in fact affect change, not always exactly the way they want to um, at the highest levels of policymaking. Yeah. 
Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Obviously, you mentioned your particular expertise and interest in Soviet Russia in the 70s. And you do talk quite a bit about, about the at least perception of persecution in in those spaces. I remember, so I grew up in a pretty evangelical, okay, in an evangelical context. And <laughs> one of the one of the books that I remember reading and being really uh, fascinated by was Tortured for Christ by Richard Vermbrand. I think he was, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he was a Romanian um, pastor and uh, chronicles his his um, adventures, his uh, torturing, <laughs> being tortured yeah. in a, uh, by the state. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious because you do talk a lot about that sort of situation in Soviet Russia in the 70s. And so I'm, I'm curious as obviously someone that did not live through that time, how much of that is perception? How much of that was reality? And kind of how that, how that affected the evangelicals attitudes and advocacy towards foreign policy and, and the Soviet Union then. Yeah. So from the perspective of evangelicals, they're getting, what is happening is they're getting reports from Christians living, uh, you know, behind the iron curtain or in what they refer to as closed societies. So they're able to get, they're getting some information out about what's going on. They're getting reports about people being forced into psychiatric treatment or jailed or fired from jobs or beaten. They're getting reports about churches being bulldozed or Bibles that have been smuggled in being ripped up. Mm -hmm. And there is a perception that develops that religious persecution of that sort is actually worsening in the Soviet Union. Um, and there are efforts in the Soviet Union to, uh, you know, it sort of ebbs and flows there, but there, there, do, there do seem to be, uh, there does seem to be more um, a, a sort of rise in persecution in the in the late '60s and early '70s, and we are also seeing that not just for Christians but also again for Jews. And the Congress in the United States is especially concerned about the persecution of Jewish citizens. Mm. And so one of the things that evangelicals are observing is that there's a tremendous number of advocates for the Soviet Jewry who are lobbying Congress because at this time in 19, in the early seventies, as part of this desire to achieve detente with the Soviet union, the Nixon administration um, and Congress are attempting to pass a trade act that would normalize relations with the Soviet union. Um, and there is a strong push in Congress from leaders such as Scoop Jackson and, and, uh, and others to impose some kinds of restrictions and in fact to try to push back on detente and one of the areas that they really latch on to is they say well, we, we should not be making foreign policy we should not be having normalized trade relations with countries that persecute people based on their religious beliefs like the soviet union suddenly imposing um diploma taxes or restrictions that make it really hard for Jewish people to leave if they want mm. to escape the persecution they're facing, which is something that was happening. So that's a good example of a specific new sure. or, or sort of new, newly introduced restriction. And so th their lobbying is very effective. And they, in fact, impose this standard Jackson Vanek Amendment to this Trade Act in 1972 that says, nope, you can't normalize trade relations with countries that are persecuting people, not allowing them to emigrate and so on and so forth. And Christians in the United States, evangelical Christians in particular, see this happening and they say, hey, you know, our brethren are being persecuted too. Why aren't we in Congress? Why aren't mm. we advocating for similar things? Because they too have noticed, again, this uptick in, in persecution and they want to do something about it. Yeah. So there's this, yeah, so it's, it's not just, again, they're not just paying attention to what's happening to Christians, but that's their primary focus. They're also, they also want to evangelize and they can't, right? They cannot easily get into, you know, they're not allowed to go to the country and and spread the word. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I was interested to backing it up a little bit and jumping off of the point of evangelism, and that being a really the critical thrust of evangelical advocacy at this point. It, it, yes, it was maybe related to the physical material. Um, situations that 
uh, Christians and others face, but it really did stem out of evangelism. And so you, and early in your book, you talk about the Luzane uh, conference in, oh, was it the 60s? Um, was it the 60s or 50s? I don't have it on. So right, 1974, right. there's 74. the International yeah International Congress on, on World Evangelization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this is with Billy Graham and John Stott and uh, some other maybe lesser known evangelical figures, but those guys definitely stood out. But there's this, this back and forth from the Christian leaders, especially in the global South, um, and you have uh, this one guy in particular, Padilla, who is stressing more of a, a holistic, um, centrally uh, or local localized um, religious evangel evangelistic effort, um, and he's pushing, and, and others are pushing in that convention to to really focus on. Um, the voices of those actually on the ground instead of this kind of top-down model that um, is criticized as uh, a really colonialism and it's kind of hard to divorce yeah. <laughs> um, the word coming out from America. I just, again, anecdotally on that, I went to a, uh, a university, we call ourselves the Great Commission University and one of the things I was always, as someone that was really interested in theology um, and biblical studies, I, I was always struck by the way we talked about the nations um, and going out to the nations. And it always struck me, well, wouldn't that be like us? Wouldn't we be a part of the nations? But in the, the way that that theology and um, push kind of goes out is that we are the we, the West, um, America, a little bit, maybe Western Europe, are the center um, of global Christianity, and then we go out to the nation. So I'm, I'm fascinated with, with kind of that interplay and Padilla's efforts and why they didn't succeed and kind of what ramifications those had. Yeah. That's a long rambling question. <laughs> it's such a, it's such a central con, I mean, I start the book with that because it is, I think, the central conflict that animates evangelical foreign policy in this time. All of this is happening in the context of decolonization in the global south. So after World War II, many of the countries in Africa, in, in Asia and elsewhere do not, you know, they, they are able to gain their independence from their, from the colonial powers, right? And that is a process that um, people all over the world are observing, right? It is a key piece of the U.S.-Soviet conflict because they are seeking to win hearts and minds in these decolonizing countries. But Christianity is, of course, implicated in that, that long history of colonialism because, as, as um, sort of scholars have said, uh, you know, Christianity was often a sort of handmaiden of empire, right? Mm -hmm. you, you send the missionaries there, they're almost uh, the kind of first people to arrive, and so and then colonialism soon follows, even though they're not maybe necessarily directly sent by the state, there is this relationship um, uh, there. And so there's this enormous critique that has emerged in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s that says, you know, from, from Christians in the global South saying, you know, we do not want you to send Western missionaries. It is, it is colonialism. It is imperialism to have you come here and sort of teach us this very sort of white, in this case, American style mm -hmm. Christianity. We want to evangelize locally we want to be doing this for ourselves um and the the challenge or the conflict that emerges by the 70s is that um many of the mainline protestant churches are hearing this and they start to they are starting to pull their missionaries out they don't want to be contributing to this colonialist project necessarily anymore or they want to be shifting to maybe doing what they see as humanitarian work and of course that still can be bound up in ideas about who knows best for different people, right? So mm -hmm. still bound up in imperialism. But evangelicals see that happening and they're panicked because not only are they watching as their mainline brethren are sort of pulling out, there's also a moment where there's an enormous amount of population growth in Africa, mm -hmm. in Asia, in the Middle East and elsewhere. And they're saying, well, wait a minute, if these countries do not have people to go and evangelize them, 
this is the population growth center. There's, there's billions of people who have never heard the word. It's our biblical responsibility to share the word with them. We, we just, we have to go in and evangelize. And Billy Graham calls this big Congress together to try to, you know, find some way to coordinate, to ensure that this evangelization can happen, because that really is the, the mission. But they get to the Congress and he's made a very, you know, he made it an effort to ensure that there were representatives, not just from the West, but in fact, it, that it was a global conference. Uh, and he, he's, so he's brought in evangelicals from Africa, from Latin America, et cetera. But they get to the Congress and they have the papers that they're ready to debate. And it's very clear very early on that many of the evangelicals from the global South do not want, again, they, they want uh, perhaps a moratorium on missions from the West, um, or at least more local evangelization. And this sets up this debate. And so people like um, Padilla, who is a Latin American theologian, he's saying, you know, we, first of all, yes, local, local evangelism, but also, whereas, you know, folks like Billy Graham are saying like the, the sort of primary goal has to be evangelism. You have to save people first. Padilla is saying, well, wait a minute, you know, how can you possibly evangelize somebody who's starving, who's being beaten by their government? Like you can't, you can't tackle evangelism if you don't have social justice or social action first. And that's the central conflict then between social action or what we might think of as a social justice orientation of Christianity or evangelism first. And the Western evangelicals, not all of them, but many of them assert the primacy of evangelism. And so in the end of the Congress, there is a set of principles that the participants sign on to the covenant, the Lausanne covenant, and social action is in there, but it's not the primary one, right? So it, the, the, the sort of Western evangelicals really went out and they put, they put evangelism kind of first as the primary aim. But that conflict doesn't go away. And so the Global South Evangelicals are still pushing for that. And they continue to push for that at the series of um, Lausanne conferences or, or um, Congress on Evangelization that, that continue throughout the Lausanne movement. But that is a conflict. And that's something that, that really that we see shaping how you know, US evangelicals are thinking about their role in the world versus um, some, of the, some of their brethren elsewhere which again, these are all, they're all evangelicals, right? This is, this is a Congress of evangelicals and this is a key, key piece of that debate. Yeah, yeah, and I think one thing you draw out of that that is sort of a, a sweeping truth that also is informing evangelicism now, and hopefully we'll talk a bit about the, the players that pop up in, in your narrative that are also, more familiar to to those of us that uh, have been paying attention the last few years on uh, to global uh, policy, U.S. foreign policy, but but also um, connects to sort of an obsession of mine, which is evangelicals leaders' support of um, contemporary wars, specifically of of Iraq, um, and why that was so natural to. Um, at bare minimum, just sort of ignore the foreign policy actions that, that got us in that mess in the first place, um, but also to support it. Um, and, and so I think one of the, the main themes that comes out of that, the Luzane or uh, Lazane, is that, is that more I, my, yeah, I, to pronounce it? <laughs> I, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm no good with some of the, the sort of names of these different places. So I'm, yeah. Close enough. <laughs> I, I have this. Somebody have, will correct us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have this habit of just making up pronunciations and doing it very confidently. And usually, my wife uh, checks me on and said, "How do you know that that's uh, the right way to say?" I'm like, "I don't. I'm just." Uh, I'm if just I've only, you know, you're often you're only reading it and you're guessing. <laughs> right. That's that's most of most of the issue for me. Um, okay. So, but it's this. It's this theme of of religious freedom um, and that being the, the main thrust because we, we want to be able to evangelize. Um, so, and so that everything else, all human rights issues are subservient to religious freedom. And to kind of tease what hopefully we'll talk about later, you, you see this in the last few years with, uh, with Trump's policies, 
um, with Pompeo and and in respect to to Israel and to to all these things that that are very very contemporary. But but I thought that was that also connected not only to the Soviet Union, um, but you talk about um, about this character Rios Mont. Um, and he was the, the brother in Christ in Guatemala, as, as uh, you recorded. Uh, tell us about Rios Mont, who he was, um, and the significance he played in the, the 80s and the Reagan years. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to back up a little. Because yeah, yeah. So, so one, of, one of the things that we see in the 70s in response to both the, the goals of, of world evangelism and concern about persecution in the Soviet Union is that evangelicals in the U.S. begin to testify more often in Congress um, and so by, in order to promote those, those agendas, right, by the 1980s, they, through their lobbying, have developed a kind of idea about what U.S. human rights policy should look like. And it is one rooted in that idea that, uh, and so we see that the, you know, the director of the National Association of Evangelicals testifies once Reagan is in office in support of Reagan's choice for um, the director of, of the Office of Human Rights. Um, but one of the things that he does in that testimony is he lays out that vision. And the idea is that um, if, every, if every person is created in the image of God, the rights, right, everyone has human dignity, the rights are therefore coming from God and not the state. Mm. And furthermore, the primary right that everybody has is to be saved, right? That, that you know, if, if you can't express your religion, if you can't express your conscience, if you can't be saved and have salvation or share, essentially practice your faith by spreading the, the word and evangelizing as a, thinking of that as a core part of the practice of evangelicalism, then you have no other freedoms. If you're not, if you're denied that right of conscience, you have nothing. So no other rights can exist without that. That's the belief that they articulate. And you can mm -hmm. see that that is a very, very narrow and specific set of rights that is quite different from the broader swath of rights that groups like Amnesty International and other either secular or more progressive groups are advocating. That helps us understand why they might be promoting religious freedom in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. But it also helps us understand why they might also look at anti-communist regimes elsewhere in the world as being uh, in line with their desires for promoting religious liberty, even as they are in many cases brutally repressing their people. And this is something we see in Guatemala. So the idea is that, um, you know, in under communist countries and other closed countries, if you're in that system, you don't have the right to practice your faith. Therefore, you're denied religious freedom. Therefore, you don't have human rights. So they're the, the totalitarian regimes are the, the, the ones that we should be most worried about. Um, and this will link into ideas of democracy promotion that will be important later yeah. if you think about Iraq. So, so that's just a kind of very broad idea. In Guatemala, in the 1980s, in the early 80s, 1982, there is, uh, first of all, Guatemala had been in the midst of a uh, bloody civil war for decades, the result of a U.S. intervention in the 50s that overthrew a democratically elected leader who happened to be on the left. So it had been a really violent place for a long time. There was a coup in 1982 against uh, the, the leader at the time and a group of young officers in the Guatemalan army. They take over the, the palace and they put out a call on the radio to um, set up a military junta. And one of the people that they call to the palace is a man named Rio Smont, who on the day that he hears this call over the radio is doing his work at a Christian day school, the El Verbo Christian Day School, because in the 1970s, he had been converted. Um, and El Verbo was a church that was set up in Guatemala from a missionary group that had come from California after an earthquake that hit Guatemala in 1976. So they come uh, from the Gospel Outreach Church, and they come down, they want to, of course, you know, help rehabilitate, right, help rebuild, but they're also there to plant churches, and they sure. plant a bunch of churches in Guatemala City and elsewhere. And Rio Smot uh, has been converted. He, he is an avid participant. He becomes the director of the day school and he hears this call over the radio and he, in his perception, he, he sort of gathers, he goes with, 
the leader of that church, which was uh, Reverend Carlos Ramirez and some of the other American church leaders, and they pray together to see what he should do. And they decide that this is a, a message from God, that he has been sort of anointed by God to lead Guatemala, essentially to, to convert it to God, to bring it to evangelicalism. So this is a predominantly Catholic country. Um, the evangelicals have arrived. The idea that th is that this is an opportunity. And so he, he goes to the capital. He very quickly marginalizes the other members of the junta and he declares himself the president in late 1982. And he says he's going to lead in the model of, you know, of the Bible, that he's going to root out corruption and, you know, bring Guatemala to God, which is what he says. And he has these Sunday sermons over the radio where he talks about all of these goals. Of course, U.S. evangelicals are very excited about this. They see this as an opportunity to kind of evangelize in, in Latin America. Riosma is also a very staunch anti-communist. And so uh, the U.S. government is also quite interested in him. And he, in saying that he's going to root out many of the problems and improve the human rights situation in Guatemala, he also means he's going to launch a war on what he calls the communist guerrillas in the, in the Guatemalan highlands. Um, and so there is an enormous counterinsurgency uh, that that emerges as he starts, you know, he, the army goes out, they round up people in villages, mostly indigenous Mayan people, uh, and he, they kind of concentrate them into these model villages, uh, or, you know, and, and it's brutal violence, right? They're torturing people, they're killing people, people are being disappeared, millions of people are displaced, hundreds of thousands of people are killed. It is a brutal, brutal conflict very clearly a genocide and it will later be, well, things get complicated, but it's a clear, clearly sort of a genocidal situation. But as this is happening, Rios Mont is kind of touting himself as this Christian leader who is bringing human rights to his country and, and, and evangelism. And evangelical leaders throw their support behind him. Pat Robertson, um, you know, is on the 700 Club. They're, they're sort of talking this up. They're trying to raise money to support him because the Reagan administration goes to meet with him. They're very eager to lend him support. They're initially, they say like, well, don't, don't, in the meetings before, sorry, in the meetings they have before their initial meeting with him where Reagan actually goes to, to meet him in Guatemala, they're like, well, you know, we don't want to throw your arms around him. We don't really know how things are going to go. Um, but then they get there and Reagan is just deeply impressed with this character. Mm -hmm. He seems like, oh, he's this really genuine guy. He's really impressed by his Christian faith and he just buys into it just wholly and wants to provide whatever support he can. And the general, General Rios wants uh, military material. He wants helicopter parts so he can continue to prosecute this war in the highlands. Now, the challenge, of course, is that Congress is not interested in doing this. They do not want to be lending support for the most part, you know, much of Congress, mm -hmm. uh, to, to people who are committing grave human rights violations. And so evangelicals rally to both lobby Congress to do that, and they sort of work around Congress to send aid in other ways to the administration. And they, they send staff down to the model villages. They go down to meet with Riosma, and they're so impressed, and they write letters back to their congregations and publish articles about how, you know, how he's doing this wonderful work. And they go to one of these model villages where a assemblies of God or church, well, a Pentecostal church has been mm -hmm. set up and they're just, you know, enamored with this. And they really see real small as being exactly what they're hoping for. Somebody who will, who will bring Christianity to this Catholic country. And they are very much have blinders on about the genocide that's happening. Um, yeah. And yeah. they're there even after he's, you know, removed from power. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And you, you, uh, as, to go back to the genocide statistics, you include 86,000, uh, mostly Mayan, um, people perish or disappear to the hands of the army. Um, yeah. And I'm struck as you're describing that, um, kind of the contrast of the Contras in Nicaragua and, uh, you know, the whole, Iran-Contra scandals, which were circumventing the U.S. Congress, and that was most of yeah. most of the issue. Um, and they, evangelicals yeah. are there too, right? Mm -hmm. So evangelicals are also part of that conflict, and and so much of this is, um, although interestingly in Nicaragua, there's also left-leaning evangelicals. So it's not this isn't a monolith, but sure. but that dynamic is there as well. And with the 
in the United States, a lot of the writing about supporting <laughs> supporting the Contras is also about preserving religious liberty in Nicaragua. Mm. So yeah. it gets bound up in a Christian nationalism there as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I want to I want to shift a bit to the early 21st century. Um, you know, we uh, September 11th happens. Um, within days, Osama bin Laden is offered up by the Afghanistan government, um, and George W. Bush wants nothing to do with it. We launch war in Afghanistan. Uh, that was 2001, and then 2003. There's there's this continued push to go to war with with Iraq. Uh, you know, the weapons of mass destruction are a complete fabrication, which is uh, seems fairly obvious to observers at the time. Um, and so it's used as a, this excuse to piggyback off of the war in Afghanistan, which was um, <laughs> every bit as farcical. But I think there's, there's this through line um, and correct me if I'm wrong, and, and if I, maybe if I'm right, then uh, riff on it for a bit. But there's this through line between a singular focus on religious freedom to the to the exclusion of other human rights, and kind of going back also to not to shoehorn all this together, but going back to the to the opposition to detente and at, towards the end of the Cold War, um, being very short-sighted and say, okay, in that case, if we end up nuclear, having a nuclear catastrophe that destroys the earth and we were like two minutes away from the, the nuclear clock exploding, um, that's fine. But what we really need to do is keep putting pressure until this whole thing either explodes or Russia falls to its knees. And so there's this, the through line that I, maybe I'm making up in my mind, but is the, the ability to get behind these wars that make little sense um, until you kind of get into the mind of, of, of kind of a fusion of religion and state and kind of a baptism of a again another evangelical leader in George W. Bush. Um, so what he's doing is clearly of God, and um, because he speaks about promoting democracy, and he speaks about uh, the religious persecution endured by uh, I don't know the Kurds or whoever is um, whoever is being persecuted at the moment. Um, justifies all this military action. So that's kind of a rambling, um, again, maybe shoehorned through well, line, but tell me, tell me yeah. about that. So, so one of the things that, it's, and again, in thinking about Guatemala, so, and, and really the Reagan administration broadly, because I actually think that these connect nicely. Um, Reagan, when the Reagan administration came into office, they, it was very eager to completely kind of undo the Carter administration's approach to human rights. I mean, they really were just very critical of the Carter administration. Mm. And one of the key sort of thinkers that the Reagan administration looks to is Jeannie Kirkpatrick, who would you know, later you know, go to the, you know, be the UN uh, representative to the UN and so on and so forth. But she wrote this article for commentary called uh, Dictatorships and Double Standards. And the core piece that I think is important here is that she sort of made the argument that while authoritarian countries will probably eventually, could eventually become democratic countries, totalitarian countries will never. And that's like the most sort of stupid, simple simplification of her <laughs> argument. So that matters, right? That's why in Guatemala, like evangelicals and the Reagan administration are like, uh, even, even when they don't have the blinders on where they're ignoring this genocide, they're like, well, yeah, he's a dictator, but like, He's, he's our kind of dictator. He's on yeah. our side. He's anti-communist. Eventually things will get better. Hopefully that's their like, and again, like, no, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's the belief. So then over time, you can imagine how you would conflate the promotion of 
uh, those like religious freedom and human rights, you're starting to conflate all of those with democracy. And so then you're broadly, if you're going into these countries and you're supporting these authoritarians, the idea is that you're promoting democracy abroad. And that democracy is, you know, of course, the sort of key goal that, that one would have in, in making foreign policy. And again, like religious freedom gets wrapped up in that. So that by the time we're coming into the, you know, 2001 and then 2003, we heard a lot of rhetoric about democracy promotion and that this is, mm -hmm. of course, something, first of all, the idea that this is something the United States can do, which is go and sort of impose a democracy on another country, right. that that should be the sort of core goal of U.S. foreign policy. I mean, that idea has been around for a long time that, that you know, the United States should be fostering democracy globally, uh, in, in particular, liberal capitalist democracy because that's how the United States ensures that it has trading partners and a world that it can operate in and not have to become like a garrison state or something like this. And so that that should be the United States goal is to is to promote democracy. And then that comes wrapped up in ideas of regime change in Iraq, which mm -hmm. uh, does not go well. Um, yeah. But the but the hope is that, well, you know, we'll we'll kind of have regime change. We can create democracy in this country whole cloth and you know, everything will be great and it will align with our foreign policy. Um, what's interesting is, you know, there had been, there's a longstanding interest on part of the United States in Iraq. They had, during the early Cold War, they had been involved in efforts to try to convince the Iraqis uh, to, they were, the Iraqi um, leadership in the early Cold War was very strongly anti-communist and the United States tried to use religion as a way to kind of continue that, to, to kind of push them to, like oppose the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union persecutes religious people. Sure. Even though the United States didn't exactly, did not necessarily actually care about uh, uh, Muslims in, in Iraq. But right. so there's this longstanding effort, like, oh, we're going to create democracy here. And they make, I mean, we could talk about all the mistakes that they make. Uh, the, the, the Iraq war is just disastrously planned everything about it. I mean, every, every decision essentially is, is just disastrous, but that's the goal. And to me, so to me, that's the link is this idea of democracy promotion being bound up in these ideas about a Christian nationalism, that the Christian vision for us foreign policy is one that is fully reflective of American values and American priorities, that they're one in the same, that religious faith is just, you cannot separate it from this idea of what Americanism is. And that's the perception that the folks that I study really seem to embrace, especially by the, you know, the 80s and 90s, the early 2000s. Yeah. And just kind of digging more into that, I'm curious to like the, the necessity of religion in, um, and, and the, the functionality of religion in that democracy promotion. Um, yes, yeah, specifically, I'm, I'm just thinking about the fact that even you know through the '80s you have Reagan supporting the supporting Saddam Hussein against the Iranians um, in the Iraq-Iran conflicts of the early '80s, and essentially giving Hussein material support until the early '90s when he apparently oversteps in in some way in, into Kuwait. And I mean, and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. I mean, yeah, we could I mean, talk freedom, sure freedom all day fighters. about that. Yeah, yeah. talk like, about that a little bit because again, yeah. I think that I think Afghanistan just sort of wrapped up. Well, I mean, we'll see what it means to <laughs> actually wrap up when we still have troops there. But there's there's again this collective amnesia um, that we forget that. Yeah, then talk about that. Talk about yeah, yeah. I mean, so the end in, of Soviet in, Russia and, and yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. In the late so in the late 1970s, um, there is an effort within Afghanistan by a, a small group of a, a sort of small communist party to come come over and take power, and and they you know they they do and they reach out to the Soviet Union because they want Soviet support and mm -hmm. the Soviets are actually not despite what the United States leaders tended to think about the Soviet Union, which was that they were eager to sort of spread to every, anywhere and everywhere. Mm -hmm. They're actually somewhat reticent to get involved because the their sort of interpretation is that this, it, which is interesting, a partly religious one, that they're not actually sure that a communist party will take hold in a predominantly Muslim society. That's mm -hmm. the sort of Soviet perception is that this might not work and they don't necessarily want to lend support. But they, they do end up eventually lending support to one of the leaders that they 
they think is kind of less problematic than some of the others. And that's, again, a gross oversimplification of what happens, but for sure. our purposes, it's just <laughs> the basics. So they end up uh, there um, in Afghanistan, and it turns into an enormous conflict, right? Because there's a lot of you know competing interests in Afghanistan. And it turns into a quagmire. We often think of the Afghanistan, the Soviet Afghani war as like the Soviet Union's Vietnam. It sure. is a total, it's a total quagmire. Um, but there are fighters from across the Middle East who start to kind of rally to support, uh, you know, essentially to, a desire to kind of expel the infidel forces, right? To expel the Soviet Union, um, including Osama bin Laden, who is a key sort of organizer and fighter of the Mujahideen. And, you know, Ronald, you know, when when the Reagan administration comes in, so that happens in 79, right, that that war starts. Um, that is the end of detente. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Carter is very unhappy. Carter is eager to sort of, um, you know, resist that change. But, but then, you know, Reagan comes into office. He's very eager to support the Mujahideen. He calls them freedom fighters in the same way that he calls the Contras freedom fighters right. in Nicaragua. And so again, you have this idea that like, well, here's, you know, this group of, of fighters who, you know, again, not, they're not looking for a democratic government necessarily. They're, they're engaged in this war and they're, you know, they're still pretty authoritarian in their own right, but Hey, they're fighting our enemy. They're anti-communist. Mm -hmm. They're our friend surely eventually will sort of sway them to become, you know, to become a fledgling democracy. So the U.S. lends all of this support um, to, to the Mujahideen and to Osama bin Laden, and they have this relationship with them. It is only later after that first war in Iraq that we start to see this, again, this shift, because uh, uh, the United States opts to leave after, after the, the, you know, during the George H.W. Bush administration after that war, the first Gulf War, uh, the U.S. leaves troops in Saudi Arabia, and this is really offensive to Osama mm -hmm. bin Laden, who like, <laughs> was like, "Well, we could have we could have had our own troops here. We don't need these U.S. you know infidel troops here. This is very yeah. offensive. <laughs> yeah. um, you know why why do we why are you having this? And so it's it sets off um, you know again the unintended consequences of these policy decisions that that are made. You know George H.W. Bush was very prudent in sort of having a very limited scope of what he wanted to do in the Gulf War and then immediately stopping and pulling out. Like his goal was not to march in and do regime change. Uh, and he didn't. Mm -hmm. They pushed, uh, they pushed uh, Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait and they stopped and they, and they, you know, they left troops in the area because they're very worried about what might happen, but they don't go in and take Saddam Hussein out. Of course, all those guys who are in the H.W. Bush administration, we later see them in the George W. Bush administration, and they do they do want regime change by by that point. And some of them had been advocating for it in in Bush 41's um, presidency as well. Anyway, so yeah. so but these things are connected, right? They're connected to what then happens in the 2000s, um, and it, it's hard to sort of not look back and say like, oh well, you know, here's the U.S. lending all this support, and it has again all of these unintended and, and perhaps unimaginable consequences. Yeah, right, right. Um, okay, so again, you mentioned characters that show back up uh, throughout history and kind of shifting to more contemporary conversation in the this last several years, um, you have uh, someone that pops up in the book in a Soviet context is Elliot Abrams. Um, and I can't help but think of again, all the overlaps of the situation in Guatemala with, um, with what just happened in Venezuela several years back. Uh, you have Evo Morales um, deposed. He was the first indigenous uh, leader of, of um, Venezuela. And then you have a, and I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but you have essentially a, one of the members of Congress installed and our Secretary of State at the time, Mike Pompeo, um, with the help of Ali Abrams, who is now in charge of Venezuela, who again is um, also involved in uh, the Contra situation in, in the 80s, a, a very um, prestigious figure throughout uh, throughout this conversation. But, but yeah, I mean, I, there's, I guess the question is, have, have we learned? Is this the same thing? Is, essentially, is this a continuation 
obviously it's a, a lot of the same people that keep popping up. So have they learned uh, maybe, a, <laughs> maybe a rhetorical question? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem that they have. I mean, one of the things that, so, you know, Elliot Abrams, when he's in, you know, when he's serving in the Reagan administration, he's, again, it's this vision of human rights that's a very narrow. It's a, a vision of human rights um, and democracy that's entirely kind of hinges on civil and political rights, the, the particular, you know, again, like religious freedom being one of them, but they're not concerned about the broader social and economic rights that other human rights organizations are. And he's somebody who really just, in the sense that there's going to be any pressure put on authoritarian regimes, it's going to be quiet diplomacy, which is like behind the scenes, no kind of big statements, not too much pressure, at the hope that they'll gradually become more uh, democratic and less abusive, um, whereas they want a lot of public pressure on on totalitarian regimes. So when he testifies in Congress as he's being appointed to, to lead the Human Rights Office, that's kind of what he's pushing. It's very much in line with the vision that evangelicals were pushing at the time. And now we're seeing, you know, again, that same idea that like, well, you know, you don't wanna push your allies too hard. And, you know, it is hard to, it is hard to push for human rights. Like one of the challenges that any policymaker faces is how do you, how do you actually push a country, another sovereign state, to adopt human rights norms. Because if they're an ally of yours, you have a certain amount of leverage potentially, this is the idea, mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily have that much leverage with your adversaries. I mean, you can put sanctions and that sort of thing, but it's very hard to actually get human rights compliance. So, that, so to, what I'm saying is not to discount that challenge, but the, the reality is that a lot of these folks say that they're going to sort of use this quiet diplomacy on authoritarian and abusive allies, but they're, they're going to do it quietly. They don't want to alienate them and push them away or push them into the hands in the, in the 80s into the Soviet Union. But ultimately, that, that doesn't prove to be very effective because they actually do not want to impose a lot of you know, restrictions on them or anything else. They don't want to punish them. And then there's, you know, so from the perspective of dictators abroad, it seems like a green light to continue to abuse their people, to continue to imprison people, to beat people, to, to um, you know, disappear them. And I think we just, we're just still seeing that. And then, you know, during the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo commissioned this, this commission on inalienable rights, where they really sort of set out to define like what U.S., the U.S. values should be that they're promoting. And he says that sort of core rights that the U.S. should be promoting are religious freedom and property rights. So again, like capitalism and religion fused together that that's democracy, you know, essentially like that's yeah. the sort of core of democracy. And that, yeah. no, no, that precludes no. a lot of other rights. It's sort right. of, it sets up a hierarchy of rights where you're like, well, if these are the most important ones, what does that say about the, all these other rights? What message does that send to authoritarian leaders elsewhere? Like, well, as long as we're kind of at least nominally protecting religious freedom, we can we can do whatever we want. We can jail protesters. We can suppress the free press, all of this. Yeah, no, and I think even going back to the original Declaration of Human Rights, like under Roosevelt and, and the coming together of the United Nations, if I'm getting that part of the history right. Yeah, I mean, there's like 10 or 12 um, things and yeah, freedom of religion is, is a thing and um, yeah. but also freedom of movement, um, freedom of um, economic um, well-being and, and housing and food, um, which it's if you- It's a big aspirational document. Right. Yeah. And, and which if you, uh, this is, I think, always the, the thing that is not talked about, which as a leftist drives me completely insane when we talk about democracy promotion in a place that has incredible poverty that, you know, let's just run down the list. You know, we have way more police murders than anywhere else, probably in yeah. the whole world combined. Um, you know, and we're so focused on spreading this democracy, which, you know, then you look at the voter suppression um, efforts from the GOP and the flip side of that, that um, eligible voters uh, do not vote <laughs> um, uh, by and large because they have nothing to vote for. Um, yeah, and I think the, again, like the 
the through line of religious freedom and the predominance that the evangelical efforts have had on foreign policy is seems very much very much with us um i mean it's and so much of it too is just to get at what you're talking about it's the the these folks would again like predominantly white conservative evangelical christians they're not pushing for justice mm. Mm-hmm. They're eager for a status quo, stability. If we might think of this as like peace, right? They, they, that's what they, they're not interested in. Or they don't seem to be interested in pushing for justice. And in the book, I also give the kind of chapter on South Africa where we see that mm-hmm. during South African apartheid, they are just, you know, a, a dragging their feet on efforts to bring an end to this brutal system because they're worried that if they do, and if it moves too fast, the African, you know, the ANC is going to come in and the country might go communist. And then what a threat that will be to the quote, one Christian country in Africa. And it's just like, my goodness. I mean, and later there's repentance for it, but it's like way too late and too little. It's like, there is no justice there. That is a desire for, for peace, but no justice. And what, what kind of peace is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, it's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day, but yeah. <laughs> the, the continued efforts against social justice um, from conservative evangelicals and the uh, the whole ongoing um, cri- you know, critical race theory conversations and um, and yeah, a, a, you know, it's it's a constant again through line through evangelical theology that none of the, none of these material things matter. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter how we act towards one another. What matters is the gospel, you know, it's very individualistic, yeah. like this individual salvation. And, and you, and again, you can see how that blends with some of these sort of mythos of, of American ideals, a kind of rugged individual. It's, I mean, you can see how that can lead to a Christian nationalism, but it certainly doesn't uh, lead to the kind of inclusive pluralistic democracy that I think many of us would like to see right. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know you know and I and some of this too is like there's been a in terms of the opposition to CRT it's like there's a real desire not to not to teach or grapple with the the history like we we do mm-hmm. not teach reconstruction and the uh, backlash to it well we don't we, we, we're not getting that to most people and there's this to our detriment, right? We have never had any kind of reconciliation effort in this country and any, any attempts have been met with just violent backlash. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, we're seeing that right now with the sort of, out, sort of outlandish reactions to, to critical race theory. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you a non sequitur perhaps, and, and then we'll, uh, I, I want you to give some plugs about what's going on for you and how we can follow your work. But my non sequitur is as a, as a scholar of um, cold, the cold war and, and all that, I'm curious because there's the conversation about Russia in the last five years has obviously been um, hysterical yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, everyone from, um, my idol, Bernie Sanders, to everybody on the right, um, Ted Cruz, those of the world, uh, has mentioned um, the dangers that Russia poses. And um, and so I'm, I'm just, I don't know, I'm curious your thoughts. It doesn't have to be necessarily linked to Christianity, yeah. um, but if it is, great. Um, but yeah, I just want to get your thoughts on <laughs> the last five yeah, years. I mean- and- What's going on? Because a lot of some of some of what we've been hearing that I've seen on on Twitter and in sort of among pundits, like, ah, are we in a new Cold War? It's it's either like, are we in a new Cold War with Russia or are we in a new Cold War with China? Yeah. And in terms of Russia, this is very it's it's frustrating because it's like during the actual Cold War, the Soviet Union was very powerful. They were Mm -hmm. a very powerful adversary. Yeah. Russia is not a powerful country. That's why we're seeing this. They are a very weak power. Mm-hmm. 
Putin's uh, reactions to being weak and his efforts to project a strength are a memory of former Soviet power, a desire to be back there, but grappling and coming up against the reality that like, no, they are very weak. They're dangerous to their neighbors, Mm. right? They're very dangerous to their neighbors. And that's why we're seeing right now, like a lot of concern that they might be striking out and invading, you know, literally right now, there's that real concern that they might, uh, might go out and start a war. But they're not the same level of threat to us as they were. And so this is one of the challenges, I think, when you have, so in terms of thinking about like <laughs> leadership in the State Department, and we have, we've lost a lot of people in the State Department, but leadership in the State Department, leadership at the highest levels of, of decision-making, and I think this was a problem with Iraq too, is that a lot of these folks um, have not fully uh, let go of the worldview of the Cold War. They're, mm. they're kind of still in some ways operating within that. And some of that has to do with the fact that there was this, it was very unclear after the Cold War ended what the role the United States should play was. It was this sort of unipolar power. Um, and it ended up deciding on a global war against terror, which clearly has not gone well and really diminished U.S. power. But the U.S. is still militarily, economically, you know, enormously powerful, um, enormously powerful, and, and Russia is not. Mm-hmm. And so I think sort of viewing it through the lens of the of the eight, late 80s or 90s is not the way that policymakers should go. Um, but this is one of those challenges in terms of, of leadership, like you do want people with experience, but you don't want them to be so locked in mm-hmm. to thinking about fighting, essentially, the, the sort of classic statement, they're always fighting the last war. Sure. That is not, that's not good either. <laughs> you good. really... So, so I sort of push against that. I think, I think we need to watch what Russia is up to. I, they're clearly, to me, that the most damaging thing that they're doing is not like, with, you know, in terms of a threat to the United States, it's not a military threat to us. It's the misinformation campaigns. It's their ability to spread um, dissent and, and, and uh, division in the United States through social media, through all of these campaigns that they engaged in, through interfering um, it, you know, in terms of the sort of discussion around the elections and that kind of thing, but that is a danger. Um, but it's not an, it's not a new cold war necessarily. I know that's not exactly yeah. what you asked, but no, I just, yeah, I, no, when I see, when I see that question, I'm, when mm-hmm. I see people say that, I'm like, oh, but it's, I mean, like, yes, the past should inform our thinking, but you also need to recognize the ways in which there's all of these contingent factors that make this a new situation. Yeah. <laughs> We're just not in the same place. Yeah. And I think just, again, going back to the double standards too, of, whatever um whatever role the the kremlin played in any misinformation you know as opposed to some hackers <laughs> yeah right it seems to be the majority of of what happened um yeah i mean to to be shocked or to be um clutching our pearls that another nation is interfering with our democracy um is i think as someone that studies foreign policy is pretty it's rich. It's, it's rich. rich. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, but the other we've thing been a lot too more is effective like, in, in that sort of thing over the years. <laughs> I mean, these, but the efforts to erode voting rights, it's like, boy, Russia could not be happier about that. Look at the, look at the United States democracy declining. I mean, the fact that the U S is described as a democracy in decline, like we've, we've lost the We've, we've lost, I mean, that's that was the shining thing to share if you have a kind of exceptionalist idea of the United States and, mm-hmm. and that the United States did that to itself, right? It's sowing, yeah. I mean, in the Iraq war, I mean, the Iraq war was one of those things that really sows a lot of division, the Supreme Court case that decided in favor of Bush becoming president. I mean, all of these things set up a situation that we have now where there's just a huge, first of all, hugely asymmetrical polarization and incredible sort of rightward shift and, and policies uh, in line with that that are deeply authoritarian uh, and, and really take away from the U.S. democracy itself and its image abroad. And Russia, I'm sure, couldn't be happier, uh, but they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're sort of delighting in something that was already in progress. Yeah, right. Okay, so uh, thanks for answering my <laughs> not second, I just, uh, um, oh, that's... And interesting and um, again and, and another maddening uh, yeah, conversation. Yeah, oh, it's, it's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so tell us about what you got in the works, um, how we can follow 
follow you and and your works and um, stay apprised of what you got coming out? Yeah, so so this book, uh, To Bring the Good News uh, to All Nations, that came out on Cornell University Press. It's uh, ebook and hard hardback. Uh, I have a code for saving about 40% or 30% on the cover price on my, it's like my pinned image on my Twitter. I'm at Lauren F. Turek on Twitter, so you can see that there. I am currently writing a new book about the um, about U.S. foreign aid, debates about foreign aid in Congress, and thinking about foreign aid very comprehensively and how different groups advocate for it, what it means. So really thinking more about the U.S. and the way it promotes its values or projects its values through its foreign policy, but not just about religion, though morality mm -hmm. and ideas about morality are very clearly part of that. Um, I have some chapters coming out. Um, I just wrote a chapter on human rights for a volume on a, a, a new history of human rights that's coming out on Rutledge, edited by Tyson Reader. Um, that would be good for library purchases because I think it's going to be an expensive book. But uh, all of those academic press books are always so so costly, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a challenge. Um, mm -hmm. But I, you know, my website. Uh, which is laurentark.com. I have links to a lot of my um, articles and I'm happy to share stuff. So, awesome. yeah, but yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Turek, uh, thank you so much for, for joining. And um, uh, yeah, it, it was rich and fun. And um, I would I'd love to have you back on at some point to, to talk even further and, and yeah, about foreign aid, which is another interesting uh, yeah. uh, scenario. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. And that's our show for this week. Thanks again to Dr. Lauren Turek. I was so grateful to speak with her. And as you probably can tell, I really enjoyed the conversation. We are hopefully going to connect in the future. I'm going to link to all of her work that she mentioned in our episode there. Again, you can support the show on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Follow my Substack on caseyhobbs.substack.com. And again, just share the episode, share our podcast, like it, rate it, review it, make it more visible in that Apple search bar and other podcast of choice search bars. Again, thanks to Phil Nellis for the art of the show. Thank you so much to Orbach for the music. We'll speak to you soon. Till then, go in peace to love and serve.